Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another exciting episode of That's Truth. I hope you are doing well on this Tuesday. I don't know whether you've had a productive day, but I trust that it has been a safe day. I'm Nathan Owens. Sitting across the desk from me, as usual, is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Um, good evening, Brother Nathan. And I want to thank those who will be listening to the program. Thank you so very, very much for allowing us to get to your home. It is a live interactive program, and we not only have that opportunity for you to interact with us, we look forward to your interaction. We have a couple of questions that have come in before we jump into our new topic tonight. And if you have a question, go ahead and send it in. Pastor, a question that came in this week. Uh, Good night. I'm enjoying That's Truth as usual. With technology being so advanced... And the prophecy of the Antichrist be known to both believers and unbelievers. How will so many people be fooled? A very interesting, valid question. Yeah, I think it's a very valid question, and I think that there's a biblical answer for it. As a matter of fact, there are several references in the Bible that explain why people go to what we call spiritual or moral obduracy, that they can't see and they become blinded. And perhaps um, we can just share with the audience um, biblical explanations for this spiritual blindness and this moral obduracy. One of the great passages is Second uh, Corinthians chapter four, verse three and four. Nathan, if you could just take that up, please. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse three and four. Give me just a second to get that pulled up. Second Corinthians chapter f- four, verse three and four, and that says. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Yeah, I know he's talking about the gospel there, but clearly the agent behind this kind of spiritual blindness uh, is the infernal enemy himself, Satan. And there's no doubt that he will play an active role in terms of blinding people to the truth in respect to uh, Bible prophecy and respect to the nearness of our Lord's coming and that terrible time that is called the Great Tribulation. So I think that one of the biblical explanations for why people can have such knowledge and it's such available to them, hear it, maybe even read it and see it, is that there's something called satanic blindness, that he has the capacity to blind people to the truth. Remember, it's also in the parable it talks about when the seed is sown, 
the birds came and took the seed so it doesn't take root. And then our Lord interpreting that particular parable, he says that the bird is Satan. The word of God is preached, is proclaimed, but before it can lodge in the heart to produce fruit, he comes and he snatches it away. So he is the uh, agent that really um, does not allow God's word to really sink into people's minds. Uh, he has a way of uh, dealing with that. The other passage I think that's very crucial is uh, Romans chapter 11, verse 1 to 9. I know it's a long passage, but I think it's worth reading. Romans 11, 1 to 9 says, I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am Israel, an Israelite, of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Verse 2, God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. What he, what he not, what ye not, what the scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and digged down thine altars, and I left am left alone, and they seek my life. If you're wanting to follow along, we're Romans chapter 11 and verse number 4. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so, then, at this present time, also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then is no one more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. Verse 7. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear, unto this day. In verse 9, And David saith, Let their table be made a snare, and a trap, and a stumbling block, and a recompense unto them. Yeah, now that's the passage that's dealing with Israel in particular. But notice the agent in dealing with blindness um, is the judicial blindness of God because of Israel's unbelief. So what what happened there in the case of Israel is that because Israel was exposed to the truth, she sent the prophets to kill the prophets. Uh, what God did basically was to redeem a remnant, what is called the election of grace. But uh, substantially, the majority of the Israelites were blinded. Uh, judicially blinded by God so that they could not uh, accept the truth and believe the truth. There's another passage, and you don't have to turn to this one, in Second Corinthians chapter 3, which says that even at the time which Paul was writing, when the Jews open the book of Moses and read the book of Moses, they are blinded as though scales across their eyes. And then Paul explains that that, that that veil across their eyes they can't see is lifted when they begin to see Christ. So you're talking about the agent, satanic agent, blinding men, but you also got the judicial blindness of God when people are exposed to the truth and refuse to believe the truth and reject the truth. God also judicially blinds people so they don't have the capacity to believe any longer. And that's a great danger 
that people need to understand. God is patient, God is loving, God is long-suffering, but it comes to a point where when God exposes you to truth and you do not respond to that truth, it comes to the point where God can judicially blind you. Even when you hear the truth, you can't accept the truth and believe the truth. You notice what it says here in, in Romans? that he will give them what is called a spirit of slumber. They'll have eyes to see, but they can't see, and ears to hear that they cannot hear. And uh, the Bible says that God blinded them. So that is uh, a second uh, agent, the agency of God in blinded men who refuse to accept the truth and turn away from the truth. Uh, God does, as a judge, judicially blind them. Another important uh, passage is Romans chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. Romans 1, 18 and 19 yeah. says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, ha- who hold truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. Okay, and look at verse 21. Verse 21 says, Because that... When they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. And then verse 24. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts. And then verse 28. Verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do things which are not convenient. Again, here is men who willfully suppress the truth. The Bible says that the wrath of God is revealed against all un- ungodliness and unrighteousness, who hold down the truth in unrighteousness. So there's not that these people didn't know this was truth, but they suppressed the truth. As a result of suppressing the truth, what God has done is that God has created a, a, a what he called moral obduracy, so that he turned them over and gave them up to their own desires, their own evil lust etc etc so that they would believe uh, a falsehood and to get what's called a reprobate mind a mind that is totally rejected so here's God's part in this whole matter again it's not that people don't know the truth but they suppress the truth and as a result God deals with it and then another passage that's interesting Nathan is 2nd Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 10 to 12 2nd Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 10 to 12 And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of truth, that they might be saved. And verse 11, And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. That's an example of what's going to happen when the Antichrist comes on the scene. Those people who had exposed to the truth and rejected the truth, did not believe the truth, and even fought against the truth. The Bible says that when the Antichrist comes on the scene, God will send them strong delusion so that they believe the lie because they would not accept the knowledge of the truth and be saved. So there's another explanation of God actively involved in keeping people in in darkness because they were unresponsive to the truth that he revealed to them. So there's God's active role again in in this whole matter. And then one other passage quickly is Hebrews chapter 3 verse 13. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse number 13 reads as follows, But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, 
lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And verse 15. While it is said, Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your heart, as in the provocation. And in the last two verses, 18 and 19. And to whom swear he that he should not enter into his rest, but to them that believe not? In verse 19, so we... So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. The point here is that even among the Israelites when they came out of of, uh, Egypt going into Canaan, that there was a generation, a group of those people, because of their unbelief, and they became hardened because they were deceived uh, by the sin nature. Uh, You notice there that uh, as a result of that, the hardness, uh, God actually destroyed them in the process. Uh, and that is exactly what happens as well with people, people who play with sin and get involved in sin and they reject the truth and harden themselves in a sin sin situation. It comes to a point where uh, their capacity to believe is lost because they become so hardened, they become so obdurate, they're almost like adamant rock. Uh, granite that you can't penetrate them. That's what sin does. It puts a layer upon a layer upon a layer upon a layer. And every time God convicts you and you turn away, you become more hard. And God can you, be, you get more hard to the point where you can hear Jesus Christ preach. And it still doesn't make an impact upon you. And the Bible warns about that hardness, hardening. And I think that's what's happening to, uh, will happen to that generation. You know, we've got so much truth. You can turn on the radio, you can turn on television, it's all over. You've got books, you've got videos, you got, you just name it, CDs, you just name it. This is a generation that really, really is almost uh, saturated if they want to know the truth but have turned the ears away from the truth. And consequently, that's why so many will fall to the lie because God is going to judicially blind them and because of the hardness of their heart. And that is the penalty and the consequence of not yielding to the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. Pastor, once a person becomes blinded from being hardened and ignoring conviction, is it possible for their eyes to be open and for them to see again? It's possible. Very rare does it happen. Uh, it's when you reach that point of complete hardness. It, it, um, if you've ever talked to anybody who's ever been to that stage, I've only had one person in my life who have ex- uh, explained to me that situation. That's a gentleman I met when I was pastoring in St. Vincent. And um, if I might share this with the audience, he was on a boat uh, traveling between the islands at the time. And uh, he... He was searching, he was rejecting the truth, whatever it is, and then he said he was laying in a bunk bed, and there was a preacher on the boat, and the preacher began to preach, and he was behind the curtain where the the preacher couldn't see him, but he said he was under so much conviction that he knew that was the moment to make a decision. But he willfully turned his back away from God on that occasion. And he told me when I spoke to him, he said, Pastor, God has never, ever spoken to me like that again. Hmm. Uh, he's aware that that was the moment of decision, and he just rejected. And as though the Holy Spirit has abandoned him, and uh, he has no longer any sense of conviction uh, in his life. We've got to understand we can't play with God indefinitely. God is patient, but the longest rope has an end. And uh, God said, my spirit will not always thrive with man. So it c- can come to the point where you keep rejecting and rejecting, 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 rejecting. 
and uh, God said, okay, I'll, I'll take my hand off your life. You just do what it is. Remember, in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's 400 years. Yeah. And they call them 400 years of silence. You know why they call them 400 years of silence? Because the prophets were sent to Israel, and Israel refused to listen to the prophets. We don't want to hear you, God. We don't want God, so you don't want to hear me? For, for 400 years, God did not speak to Israel. After the book of Malachi closes, there's not a prophet that God raised up to speak again to Israel until John the Baptist comes on the scene. 400 years of silence. That's why they call it the silent period in, in, in church history. And uh, it's a reality. It can happen. Uh, God's patience can run out. And we don't know when it happens. But if you keep on putting off the gospel, keep on not responding, 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 be very much aware that you can reach the point where you become so morally obdurate, so spiritually blind, that nothing impacts your life any longer. You're like a walking zombie with no spiritual desire, no spiritual uh, impressions are made upon you. No matter what is preached, no matter what you hear, you've come to the point where you're, you're hardened. And I think that helps to explain those four things. Uh, helps to explain how people can have so much Bible knowledge about Bible prophecy and still fall for the Antichrist and not believe the truth. Pastor, for the listener who has just received a wake-up call and is saying, Pastor Murphy, I've been ignoring conviction, but the sobering thought that at some point I may become blinded and that conviction may not come as strong or may not come anymore. Pastor Murphy, what should I do to get right with God? Well, there's only one thing to do, and that's repentance. And, and if you really come to the point where you know God has been speaking to you again and again, and you still have that sense that He's speaking, uh, the proper thing to do is to get before God, get on your knees and repent of your sins, ask God to forgive you, and help it to stir in your heart again uh, the fluttering of the Holy Spirit within you, as it were, uh, to move you back to that point where you become sensitive to Him. You know, if you read the book of um, at the book of Kings, you read a, a man called uh, Manasseh, the most evil king in Israel. Uh, he not only brought idolatry, but he also was the one that introduced the burning of the children to Moloch, where Moloch had an open hand with a fire, and you would put the child there, and the child would just as a sacrifice. If you read the story of Manasseh. There was no man more wicked, no king more wicked, and there's hardly anybody that can be more wicked. But the Bible says that Manasseh repented. And believe it or not, the Bible says, Lord, forgive me. It's an amazing passage to read, the life of Manasseh, that even so evil and so wicked, the Lord was still willing to forgive him. I think that's one of the great passages of Scripture. If you, you think you've gone beyond the point of recall, read it again and see exactly that like God may be stirring you that he's a compassionate God willing to forgive. But the longer you delay the more hard you become, and uh, you need to be very... I had a, a call from one of the islands uh, was last year, a, a person I knew very, very well uh, for many, many years, and I don't want to give you the whole story because you might be listening, but he personally thought that he had gone beyond the point of... Uh, he just thought he was an apostate. Now, there's a believer, by the way. Uh, he used to go to Grace Baptist Church. He's no longer in Grace Baptist Church. He's in another island. But you can hear in his voice the fear and the mere thought that it has finally dawned in him that he has played Christianity for so long and it, he's just awakened to the reality that I might be totally lost. Mm. I wish you could have heard the tone in his voice 
And I try to give him hope uh, in that respect because the fact that he's under that conviction says to me the Lord is not finished with him as yet. But there are a lot of people playing Russian roulette with their lives and they just go on being disobedient to Scripture, living their lives as they are, and they just think that one day they'll just shake themselves off like Samson and return to the Lord. Then they'll discover they have no strength. It's all gone, all sheared. Uh, it's a very dangerous thing to play with God, especially when God has been bringing conviction in your life, to just put it off and put it off and put it off and put it off. You're very much in danger of God just taking his hand off your life and let it go to complete ruin. Pastor, a question that has come in, should we love our enemies and does the Lord love Satan? <laughs> I know we should love our enemies, but God didn't say he loved his, right? Um Satan is irrecoverable. The Bible is very, very clear about that. Uh, and I, I don't know, for example, why grace was not extended to the fallen angels. I guess because they are not made of flesh and they were not uh, subject to the same kind of temptation that we are. And these are uh, creatures that are uh, before the throne of God and should have known that, uh, you know, anyone that wanted to exalt themselves above God had to be a rebel. But clearly, uh, all God has for Satan is ignition, wrath, and, and hell. But we are told to love uh, our enemies because you're dealing with a different level of, of, of creature. You're dealing with one that is uh, made of flesh, and made of blood, and uh, God has extended grace to us. So if God extended grace to us, he's now asking us to extend grace to each other. And that's where he can ask us to do that, because he himself is extending grace uh, to you. Uh, when the Bible says, by the way, love your enemies, it don't mean to have good feelings towards your enemies. I hope you know that. The word that is used is the word agape. Uh, because that's something that puzzles people like, how can I love my enemy when I don't have feelings towards my enemy? And the simple reality is that what you do with your enemy is that you treat your enemy as you want to be treated. You treat him with kindness. That doesn't mean you have got the feelings for that. But what you will discover is that you treat your enemy with kindness and you respond to him with a changed attitude. He responds with feelings to you. And guess what? Your feelings begin to vibrate. That's why the Bible does not talk about, you know, have feelings towards your enemy. You, you just can't have feelings towards your enemy. But treat your enemy as you want to be treated with kindness and thoughtfulness. And I'm going to suggest to you that sooner or later, he's going to respond to you and feelings are going to be gentle. That's why uh, when I'm dealing with couples who think it is over, pastor, this marriage is over. Uh, I don't love my husband anymore. I don't love my wife anymore. I always ask them the question, can you love your enemies? Are you supposed to love your enemies? And they always have to say yes because the Bible teaches that. And then I have to explain to them that it doesn't mean you must have good feelings. But you must treat them as you want to be treated. So go back in that house, uh, show kindness, do your part, fulfill your role. Even though that person may not be responding to you the way that need, you want them to respond, you do your role. You're not responsible for their action or their behavior or their attitude. God holds you responsible for your action, for your attitude. So you do your part, but you'll discover as you do your part and you're kind and you're doing what God says, the Lord has a way of breaking down that individual, and sooner or later, you'll find that um, their attitude turns towards you, their behavior turns towards you. And guess what? The thing you never thought you could ever have again, those feelings begin to to, to uh, just slowly rise, and before you know it, uh, the emotions come back. Without that, I keep saying on this program, there's absolutely no hope for anybody if that is not possible. But God has wired us in such a way that when attitude and behavior change, feelings also uh, change and, and get uh, generated. Is that 
just theoretical, or is that proven to be true? Well, the Bible said that's why the Bible said in the Book of Romans: um, If your enemy hungry, uh, feed him. If he's thirsty, what you do? You build coals of fire. You're burning him up on the inside. That's basically what he's basically saying. That's the biblical model of how you deal with your enemy, how you change an enemy to be a friend. Uh, so it's not a question; it's just theory. The Lord said, "You do this, and you're going to burn him up on the inside to the point where he has to yield, and he melts before you." You're listening to That's Truth, live call-in program here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse on Tuesday evenings, and then it's rebroadcast on Saturday afternoon. If you're listening on the Saturday afternoon broadcast, we appreciate you taking time out of your Saturday. You can still send in your questions via WhatsApp or text message, and we will answer them next week on the episode. Do you have a question that you would like answered? You can call and be put live on the air, 268-462-7420. Or you can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. You can also join us on Facebook Live. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page. Click on the Facebook Live video feed. You can watch behind the scenes, listen to the program, and interact with us by sending in your questions or your comments right there in the comment section on your device. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 7.55. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 11.60 a.m., 92.3 f.m., and online at www.radiolighthouse.org. Pastor, our next question is in relation to a 46-minute video that was sent to the station WhatsApp. Uh, Obviously, we're not going to take the time to listen to the 46-minute video, but let me just read a brief synopsis of it, and then I'll ask the question. It was a Facebook Live video by Brian Francis Charles, who resides in Antigua, but originally is from Dominica, and he's associated with the Miracle Arena branch of Antigua. Mr. Charles says that God has given him a word and a prayer for the two nations, Antigua and Dominica, and the leaders of those two nations, and that God has sent him as a messenger to warn those nations using Isaiah 54, verse 17. He warns the leaders that disaster and destruction will come to their countries unless they repent and have a national day of prayer. He even warns that what happened in St. Vincent will also happen to these countries if they do not call for a national day of prayer. Mr. Charles claims that he is not speaking of himself, but is speaking in the Spirit as God has revealed to him. He also babbles, uh, presumably maybe in speaking in tongues randomly throughout the video. Towards the end of the video, he prays for several individuals' needs and prophesies that they will be healed or helped. Now for the question. Good night, Pastor and Brother Nathan. Pastor, what do you have to say about what this man is saying, that God talked to him about Antigua and Dominica, about what is happening if the leaders do not repent, and what will happen to them? Believe it or not, I tried to listen to the video. Uh, it almost sent me asleep, I must be honest with you. Uh, I found that it was a lot of rambling. Uh, he keeps repeating the same thing. He, like he's, he, there's no order or sequence to what he's saying, and he just crisscross and crisscross and come back. He's saying then go to some desk, come back, etc. Uh, he also had a tendency to use a lot of, a lot of bland cliches uh, that you hear all the time that are being used. You know, uh, let go and let God, uh, God Almighty, keep repeating those. And then of course, uh, 
he had this uh, penchant for gibberish. Like he wants to impress you that he's speaking in tongues. So he says a few little words. Uh, clearly it's not a language that he's speaking, but it, it's just, in my judgment, um, I just couldn't figure out why he would try to punctuate what he's saying. But I suppose that's supposed to get into kind of spiritual authority. Um, he says that the Lord has um, spoken to him to go to the PM, speak to the PMs. Uh, Mr. Brown and also Skerritt. My problem with that is that if the Lord told you to speak to them, you go to them directly and speak to them. Why do you have to put this on the air? Uh, Is it to show that you are some kind of a prophet, you have a prophetic gift? Uh, So I really was not impressed by that. If the Lord told you directly to tell these men, at least get the email or call them or whatever it is, there's not need to put this in public if if that's what the Lord has said. I don't think the Lord actually told you that, to be very honest with you. And I think it would be proven false very much very easily because you're calling upon the Prime Minister of both Dominica and Antigua that they're the ones that have got to lead the uh, the prayer meeting when they call the nations to prayer. Uh, again, uh, I am going to suggest to you that neither of them are going to, they might call for their prayer whether as a result of this letter or not. That's what you're saying is not. But they are not going to be the ones going to lead it. You're saying that if they don't lead it themselves, that the Lord is going to bring the same thing that happened to St. Vincent to these islands. That, to my mind, is so stupid and so silly. It's not even worth entertaining. So I, I was not impressed at all with what was said. I just think that he was trying to claim spiritual authority he doesn't have. And the idea of using, uh, um, punctuating his statements with uh, some kind of gibberish language that nobody understands uh, really, really, to my mind, expose, uh, quite frankly, that there's no spiritual authority there whatsoever in that regard. The other thing that he, he makes some real uh, mistakes in, that one time he talks about the state of Dominica, then he prays for the Spirit of God uh, to, to, to go and consume all the people, and then the other time he prays also that they, the Lord would heal them. So I'm saying, which one you want to pray? You know, you're, you're just saying things, but you're not really speaking with any kind of logic any kind of sequence. So um, I just think that Mr. Francis is misled. Uh, I don't give any substance to what he's saying. Uh, I wish that when he was going to come on the uh, public like this that he had some kind of logic and sequence to what he's saying. And I think the public would have benefited far more if you're taking the Word of God and expound the Word of God and explain the Word of God. But pretending to be some kind of a prophet who has some kind of special gift, um, I, I don't buy it. Um, and then towards the end, he, he he tells people that he was one of the best goalkeepers in uh, Dominica. I don't know what's the point of that. Uh, and then he adds that he went to jail as well. He spent some time in jail. I don't know what's the point of that either. Um, I, 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 really, if this is the message to the PM in uh, Dominica and the PM in Antigua, why do you need to put those kind of um, appendages onto onto the, on this whole matter? I was just disappointed overall, and uh, I don't think there's any substance to what he's saying. I just think he's one of those people who uh, perhaps had over eight, had a a dream or something, uh, or whatever it is. But I was not impressed with what he said uh, overall, quite frankly. If you have a question, you can send it in via WhatsApp or text message, 268-782-1454. Thank you to... Each of you who have sent in questions already, and as soon as your questions come in, we will answer them. The phone line is open and available, and if you'd like to call and be put live on the air to ask your question, you can call 1-268-462-7420. 
Nathan, may I just inject, inject something? You know, he reminds me of a lot of people who made prophecies about Trump that he was going to be reelected. A lot of those ministries have gone down the drain, mm-hmm. basically. Uh, I hope that this gentleman here who has made this big prophecy and all the, everybody in the, in, the, in the Caribbean who probably heard of it, whatever it is, I hope when it's shown that Dominica doesn't go through the same thing that St. Vincent, I wonder if he's still going to have a ministry. I mean, you've got to hold these people accountable. You can't get, come and make these kind of bland statements and then when they turn out to be false, then to retain your credibility as a pastor or as a prophet. So I hope he pays some kind of a penalty for uh, coming out so boldly and making these kind of statements uh, because and these are the things I think that helps to diminish the ministry because when people who claim to be uh, told by the Spirit of God to say certain things and do certain things and then people are listening to them and then it doesn't turn out to be so people doubt the credibility of the Scriptures so they do more harm in the long term to Scripture and to the church than uh, than even an atheist can do or some agnostic can do. And that's why we've got to be very, very careful uh, about people making these kind of uh, weird, bland statements that really don't amount to much. We are going to jump into a new topic tonight, and we will continue it until we get your questions and answer your questions as they come in. The topic we're going to begin discussing dovetails with the one we discussed for the last couple of weeks, and it's that of codependency. And as we often do, Pastor, start with definitions of terms. Can you define codependency for us? Well, I think think most people understand the concept of dependency. Uh, When we talk about dependency, uh, we're talking about uh, people relying on something or someone to support, to give them some kind of assistance. People are dependent on uh, different objects, uh, substances, behavior, uh, persons, and they do this because it has some kind of underlying attempt to get some emotional need met. Um, when we talk about codependency, the word co means with, and uh, codependency has to do with relationships, uh, two people. It, 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 uh, it refers to a skewed relationship in which one person is dependent upon another person to the point of being controlled and manipulated uh, by that person. And they seem helpless to break this emotional bondage. Uh, The word uh, codependent uh, was a word that first was used in the 1970s to talk about uh, a family that is living with an alcoholic, where the the whole family's life revolved around the alcoholic. Everybody changes to accommodate the alcoholic, and nobody seems to want to hold the alcoholic accountable. Uh, Even the wife sometimes uh, wants him to remain in that state because uh, she is the one now is in control of the family. Mm -hmm. Uh, He he doesn't have the leadership anymore. As a matter of fact, when some of these people come out of codependency, the partners can't handle it because they're now coming back to their role. So they've assumed the role of the dependent person, and they don't want to surrender, etc. So that's why we get the word, uh, uh, talk about codependency. So it's really a dysfunctional behavior of a family member, uh, and they seek to adopt um, to this person's destructive behavior, even though it is undermining the family. Now, I know the oftentimes when discussing the codependency, there's the term enabler comes up. What is that referring to, or who, maybe I should say, who is that referring to? Well, the enabler is a person uh, within a codependent relationship who enables the, the say, the alcoholic or the drug addict. Uh, that's the person who's dependent uh, upon them. And uh, they, they do this to continue uh, with the addiction. They don't draw any lines or make any boundaries. 
and and that they try to prevent the person from having any kind of consequences, basically. So really, they're really facilitating the person in maintaining his habit. Uh, and they think they're doing the right thing sometimes, but really, in truth and fact, they're shielding the person from any kind of consequences so the person doesn't face any consequences to keep making the same mistake again and again and again and again and again. It's like a, it's like a mother or a father who has a child at home who's a drug addict. But keep sh- shielding him from the consequences. They never call the police. They don't want anybody to know. Uh, and uh, they know that this person is going to end up dead at some point in time. But they keep, all they keep doing quite frankly, and they don't set any boundaries to him. So that the next time I find you or you are in this space, this is what's going to happen. There are no consequences. So they keep, that's an enabler. Eventually, it is detrimental to the person who's a dependent person. And, uh, that's why they call it codependency. This person, by the way, uh, needs to be needed. So that's why they keep that person in that need condition. It's a very weird psychological way of thinking. It's like, I need my son who's an addict, that he depends upon me because that gives me a sense of worth. So that's where my worth comes, that he's dependent upon me. So I can't have him independent, and I keep him in that kind of a vicious cycle. So that's what an enabler is, really. A person who facilitates a person in the bad habit, and don't set any boundaries, don't have any consequences, so that this cycle keeps going again and again and again. They'll come to you and tell you, Nathan, this is a problem. You'll suggest them, well, you know, why doesn't you let the person take some consequences? Well, I can't do that because he's my son or he's my child. But you say, but you know what's going to happen eventually? You're going to put him in the morgue, you're going to put him in some, and they get very, very upset with you. When I was in uh, St. Lucia, I remember a situation that I still think about uh, where there's a person who was a very good craftsman, very good craftsman, but very dishonest as well. And uh, make a long story short, he did some real, certain things he did that was illegal, and he wanted some, he did something else. And uh, it was a big time, big thing, he got involved with something else, and I, I spoke to the mother, and I said, listen, let the boy pay the consequence. He'll never change if you don't let him pay the consequence. She thought I was the worst person in the world. And then um, I said, okay, if you're not, don't, don't, don't bail him out now. Don't bail him out. At least make him sell his vehicle so that he will pay back this, it was money. Uh, rather than you go and take an insurance policy and now borrow money and put yourself in trouble, let him sell his vehicle. That was the worst thing I ever told her. The funny thing about it, after um, she, she went and did some kind of a loan and paid off whatever it is, the same vehicle I told her to sell, he got in an accident and got ripped off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to make a long story short, um, I don't want to say too much because you know I'm, I'm, I'm ministered in the, the, the islands. That was what I call a codependent relation. The mom should have let the child pay the consequences. There should have been some. She should have drawn some line. Next time this happened, or you know, it, it happened several times. The thing was being done, but she just felt she had to protect her child. And um, but how can that be a negative thing? Because it's done in the name of love. Yeah, but love got to be tough sometimes, uh, Nathan. You can't uh, you can't uh, encourage and enable a person because eventually it's not going to help the situation. It makes the situation worse. And if that person ever come out of their situation, they will look back on on what my mom has done or what my dad has done and blame them that they should have allowed me to stand the consequences far sooner so that I might have had this kind of change. If they don't change, normally it ends up taking them to an early grave or doing something that ends up where the, 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 uh, the, the parent or the regrets. Uh, we must help our kids, no question about that. But we must also realize there comes a point where we have to draw the line 
And if they're not going to hold the line, we have to allow the consequences to flow. Uh, if we don't do that, uh, in the long term, it doesn't help the individual, and the situation gets worse. If you've just tuned in, this is the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, and the name of the program is That's Truth, a 90-minute live interactive call-in program. If you have a question, you can WhatsApp or text it to 268-782-1454, or you can call and be put live on the air by calling 268-462-7420. We are discussing codependency. Your question doesn't have to relate specifically to that topic, but until questions come in, we will be continuing to discuss this topic. Codependency. Pastor, how do we identify or know an enabler? Well, an enabler uh, basically is um, a person who uh, perpetuates in another person destructive behavior. That's how you, you really know it. And uh, they do that by protecting the person, as I said, from painful consequences. And uh, it gets, they're too emotionally attached uh, to the person uh, to try to allow any kind of consequences to flow. Uh, so I'm just saying to you that the motivation to change uh, is not there because the enabler is actually facilitating the continuation of the destructive habit without, as I pointed out, any kind of consequences or any kind of uh, joining any kind of uh, lines um, and setting any kind of boundaries. Do you want to give us any more examples of enabling, or do you feel you've covered the topic? No, I, uh, for example, there are alcoholic um, wives who got an alcoholic husband, and he blows it on weekend, and uh, he can't go to work on Monday or Tuesday, and they call her to ask her uh, why he's at, well, he got the flu. Mm-hmm. You know, they keep lying, 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 and uh, what they're doing, they're enabling that person. They don't want him to face the consequences, but again, that's not going to help the situation. Uh, that is a, an example of uh, a person enabling the person in, in, in that regards. Uh, I mentioned the matter of uh, the teenager with the drugs. I mentioned the one sometimes who get into uh, do some unethical things. Um, so they don't want repercussions uh, because they think it's going to be detrimental to the family member. But again, um, you've got to take a stand at some point in time. Yes. Pastor, we have a call from Grays Hill, Antigua. Thank you for calling. And go ahead with your question, please. Yes, good evening. Good evening, sir. Uh... Pastor Murphy, let me ask you a question. In early Bible days, the kings used to have many, many wives. And I don't want to use the liberty, I don't want to use the liberty to say that um, it was okay with God. But why is it wrong now in our time that we should not do that? Well, number one, uh, uh, God tolerated that social system in the, under the Old Testament economy. But again, we get our instructions from Jesus himself. He reminds us in the book of Matthew that when God made man, he made them male and female, and he put two together and they became one. So from the very beginning, it was always God's plan that one man and one woman would form a family. That's from the very inception uh, you can see that in the scriptures. And that's why in Matthew 19, our Lord went back 
to the, the whole plan. Because remember in Matthew 19, they were arguing about divorce, easy divorce. And uh, the Lord said, you shouldn't divorce your wife. And then he, he gave a reason except for uh, adultery. But the point that he put is to go back from the beginning and see what God's plan was. If God intended that man should have had three wives, he would have made an Eve, he would have made a Jane, and he probably made a Susie. But he made one Adam and he made one Eve. That shows yeah. you God's original plan. The other thing that I think is important is that um, the standard that was set for the pastors really is an outstanding, gives you an idea of what God's mind is, that he must be the husband of one wife. And again, remember that polytheism, uh, sorry, polygamy was a feature as well in, in New Testament times. Uh, but again, calling him back to the original standard, the pastor who has to be the example and the leader in, in that respect. The other thing is this, you know, very few of these marriages that have three and four wives ever work out. We did in the Bible see the trouble that uh, Abraham had when he had Sarah, and then he had um, um, the lady from Egypt as well. Uh, look at the wives that Jacob had and see how there's this massive competition going on between Leah and Rachel and all of those, etc. It, it, it's not conducive to any real lasting relationship that is supposed to be permanent. You've got all kind of jealousy, all kinds of... And then you've got all these children from these different women. Uh, and uh, it is very, very hard. That's why you have Ishmael and mocking Isaac. Uh, because he, he is, Ishmael, of course, came through Hagar, and of course, uh, Isaac came through, through Sarah. Um, so, so you see the, 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 the contention there. But the, the, the answer for that is very simple. We have to always go back to what God's original intent was. And remember the one that came to give us God's final. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews, God who at sundry times and divers manners spoke to us in times past by the prophet, hath spoken to us in these last days by his son. So in terms of what God's will is, final in these matters, we go back to the words of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus in regards to these things. So he has set the standard that is one woman and one man uh, that's intended to have a marital relationship. And that's why the Bible condemns uh, adultery, it condemns fornication, it condemns all these other, other means. Thank you, sir. You're welcome, sir. Thank you very much for your call. Continue to listen from Antigua and encourage others to tune in to the program also. We still have 45 minutes in the program tonight, and so there's plenty of time for you to send in your question or to encourage others to tune in to That's Truth. We're discussing codependency and specifically the enabler and examples of enablers. Did you have any other examples you wanted to mention? Yeah, it's like a friend who is excessively fixated on another friend, uh, and that person needs to stay with that friend because of it, even though the relationship is actually destroying the other person. You've seen people like that all the time, you know. Why do you keep associating with this person? Mm -hmm. They're just pulling you down. You, you, you can see every time, every, every month, you're going further and further down. But they just seem to be so fixated that they can't seem to break that bond that is there. Even though they realize the person is sending them the wrong, the wrong, wrong they, they feel that they need the other person. They need to be needed by the other person as well. It's a, it's a real uh, psychological um, mess that the person's in. Uh, I'll, I'll take another one where a counselee clings to a counsellor. I mean, a counsellor's job is to 
get himself out of a job. You don't want people dependent upon you for two years and three years. I tell people every time they come to me, I want to give you the tools that you can solve your own problems. So I'm going to help you, but I'm not here for you can lean on me because I'm not. I can't handle that. But there are some people who derive a certain level of pleasure of having people having to depend upon them, depend upon them. That's a, and the other thing is so you have sometimes where um, a lay person is dependent on a spiritual leader. I mean, a spiritual leader should get that person's level of maturity that they don't have to keep depending and depend. Well, I got to hear what he, this person says. I got to hear this. I can't make a decision until this person gives me advice. That is a codependent relation. You want independent persons who can interact with each other, share with each other, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't want somebody so dependent that they can't even survive. But Pastor, can I eat, drink food? This can I eat? Uh, what can I eat today? What what coffee can I use? Coffee? What do I use? I'm exaggerating, of course. But that's a kind of a dependent thing that we all ought to be very, very careful about. So it's not just the alcoholics, not just the drug person. But we got to make sure that we want interdependence, not dependency and codependency. We want people to be able to give and take and be able to act on their own without having to constantly seek somebody's advice on, on matters. Very interesting. I wasn't even thinking in the realm that it could cross into the spiritual realm or the church I realm. I believe it, it does. That's why sometimes when a leader falls, it's mm. like the whole world falls. You know, like Rabbi Zacharias said, like, yeah. the heavens fell. Rabbi Zacharias, it happened. I was disappointed. I was grieved. But that doesn't move me one bit. Mm. to be very honest with you. And I thought he was a great writer, very excellent uh, apologist. But again, all men are made of feet of clay. Our faith is in God. Our faith is in the Word. So no matter who falls, who goes away from the truth, I am unmoved because I'm grounded in Scripture and grounded in God. I don't have to depend on any person to, to, to keep my faith going. Uh, and I think that is what we need to do as believers. Let people mature. Have faith in God. Have faith in the Word. Nothing wrong in having a man that you believe in and stuff like that. But he must never, ever throw all your weight upon a man. You throw your weight upon God, upon His Word. Is it possible to have a codependency relationship between employer and employee? Yeah, I think that is that is very, very, very uh, possible as well. Um, I think sometimes, to some extent, the if I might put it this way, in, in most businesses, to be very honest with you, I think the secretary is probably the key person. And and uh, sometimes they're so much dependent upon her, as though she left, the whole company would collapse. I don't think that should ever be the case. Somebody should always be willing, able to take over. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, when that person realizes that they're almost indispensable, they can really take advantage of the situation. So I do think it can develop into that, uh, and I hope that... Uh, it doesn't, but I think it can actually develop into that. So. Pastor, we have a call from Bendel's Antigua. Thank you for calling. Go ahead with your question, please. Good evening, good evening. Mr. Williams, how are you doing, sir? Fine, thank you. Doing well. How can we help you tonight? Yes, Pastor, what do you roll of of a prophet right now in the New Testament? What do you roll of a is it called from God or is it just imitating 
I think we've answered the question before, but let me just say this. Look, there are no modern prophets. The prophets laid the foundation. The apostles and the prophets laid the foundation for the church. You find that in the book of Ephesians. It makes it very, very clear. They laid the foundation. Then the Bible says that God has given pastors, teachers, and evangelists. These are the ones that are building on that foundation. So we don't rebuild the foundation any longer. The foundation is already laid. They fulfill their prophetic job. Uh, We have the Word of God that's complete. There's no more prophecy to be added to God's Word. Our job now as pastors is to interpret the Word and explain the Word. But when these people are making all these kind of bogus claims that they're prophets, and and by the way, they, they make so many mistakes, they tell so many prophecies that don't come true, but the people never hold them accountable. And that's what bothers me. The Bible says if a man claims to be a prophet and he makes a prophecy that doesn't come true, he's a false prophet. It says that clearly in the book of Deuteronomy. So I don't know, I don't understand why, how they're allowed to get away with this. And then, you know, they have these big programs and they're on radio and they make this thing and then it, it, it proves to be false. But yet they're able to continue um, with their program. And with the, so it, it, I'm just st- struck that people are so easily and so gullible today. Look, the, brother, the only way that we're going to save ourselves out of the big deception that is coming is to stick with the word. The Word of God doesn't change. Let that be the standard. Let that be the sibboleth by which we build our lives, on which we depend. We don't have to depend upon any modern prophets uh, making any kind of grand, uh, grandiose statements, etc., etc. Uh, the Word of God is complete. There's no need for the prophetic gift. And uh, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't give any credence to these people who claim to be prophets whatsoever. Well, I, I don't want to believe in that too because why I find that some people want the prophet because they want the prophet to give, tell them what they haven't got. <laughs> well, you know, look, I don't forget this. I, I don't want to seem as though I'm, I'm um, mercenary in my thinking, but remember that a lot of these people, uh, a lot of this is is, is commercial thing, okay? And let's, let's be very honest. You can go to a prophetic school in America to, to get a prophetic diploma, Okay. Uh, I forgot how much money it is you, you pay to get that. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's a whole racket that's going on today, and I don't understand why people with an open Bible just can't say, let's follow God's Word. Let the Word of God be the standard of what we... Look, if we just live by God's Word, we will solve a lot of our problems, and we'd be much holy than we are. Than we are. Uh, and listening to these people don't help us one bit whatsoever. They just send up our emotions. They're sensational. Uh, they, they, you know, they got all these pyrotechnics they're talking about, and they make all of these bogus prophecies. They get you depressed one moment. They get you excited one moment. Up and down, topsy-turvy. It's of no real lasting benefit. We want some stable study, study mature people. And that comes through the study of the Word, prayer, and fasting uh, periodically, etc., etc. But all of this uh, rigmarole that's going on in the, in the religious world really must be a great disappointment to God himself. Exactly, because I, I, I was the one that sent the, the video because I find... You say that you're a prophet, and then how come you two, you two countries talking about Dominica and yeah. Antigua, and so much country that is under crisis? Yeah. Well, he's a Dominican, first of all, and I think the, the problem that these people are having today, you have two very strong leaders in Skerritt and, and Gaston Brown. There's no question about that. These are strong leaders. And people today do not want strong leaders. They want weak leaders. They want feminized men. Uh, that's basically what they want. They don't want people that can make tough decisions and, 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 and that kind of thing. They're, they're more, uh, you know, it's more like a, a dialogue, a more of a, um, 
there's a term for it, but uh, but to have a strong leader like, like uh, finding uh, Prime Minister Brown and uh, Mr. Skerritt, uh, you find that people don't don't like those kind of strong leaders. They watch want weak leaders that they can push around, and neither of those people can be easily pushed around. So I, I don't um, I don't know what beef he's got I- against these two people. Uh, but I was really disappointed with the video, to be very honest with you. And one thing I didn't like was uh, all the cliches he keep using again and again. I've heard his cliches a dozen times, and you know, I just disappointed. I just disappointed. You too, sir. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you very much for the call. Have a safe and blessed evening. Time. Uh, I want. Sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say the time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.25. Pastor? No, I was trying to say that the other example of that is uh, the romantic relationship where there is this codependency. I've known people, and you probably have known people, that they're into a romantic relationship, and there's nothing there. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, uh, you could, you could, there's zilts there. And you know what? They break up. They come back together. They tell the same old story. They break up. They come together. You're actually, you're almost saying, but where has common sense gone? But they're so dependent. And you can't, it's like the person has a spell on them. Like, you know, Paul asked the Galatians, who have bewitched you? (laughs) (laughs) uh, But that's a codependent relationship. And it's really, really sad when you see it, but it really happens even today. But that's another example, a romantic relationship. Can there be codependency between government? and society I think that you can have that especially where the government does everything for you like a welfare uh, system a welfare state and I think that is exactly where America is headed to be honest with you you American but I can say that I think that's where but you remember that out of when you get welfareism you always get a, a, almost an absolute state the state controls everything so you lose all your freedoms so basically, you have to decide if you want a handout or you want your freedom. And today, it seems to me that people rather have a handout than their freedom. And I think that is the direction in which your government is going. I think it's it's really, really bad. It's keep a dependent uh, group. But again, in a democracy, once it has to do with how many votes, if you create a, de- uh, a dependent clientele, you almost are guaranteed to be re-elected again because the more goodies you give, the more they vote for you, the more goodies you give, until eventually the country goes broke. Yeah. And and, and that, I think that is where America is headed. It's very, very, very sad, but that's exactly where I think you're headed. On the topic of codependency, what are some common features of a codependent relationship? Um, yeah. You're listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We are broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, and online at www.radiolighthouse.org. It is a live interactive call-in program, and so we look forward to your interaction. We thrive off of your interaction, and I know it's this way for Pastor, and it's this way for me. Tuesday night is one of my highlights of the week. If you have a question and you'd like to call in, be put live on the air, you can call 268-462-7420. If you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to 1-268-782-1454. Again, the WhatsApp or text number is one two six eight seven eight two one four five four. You can also interact with us on Facebook Live. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the 
Facebook Live video feed link, and you can watch behind the scenes, listen to the program, and send in your questions right there in the comment section on your device. Pastor, we have a text message that has just come in. Good night. Pastor, what is your view on a relationship where the man and woman, not married, but living together because of the children and also where their situation is financially beneficial for both parties? Well, if you're a Christian, that should never happen. Uh, so I don't make any apologies about that. That's a biblical norm. Um, I don't think it is good for the children. Uh, in the long term, you're setting a bad example. Uh, if you want to model what the Bible is teaching, and you want your child to know that you should you know, you should be married before you get involved in, in sexual activity, uh, and so on and so forth. So, uh, financial necessity is often used as an excuse for immoral behavior. And I think that's exactly what is happening here. Uh, if I were in that situation, well, I would never be in that situation, Lord helping me. Uh, but I would not recommend that if you, uh, two, yeah, I'm assuming that two believers, uh, that this is two believers, it's two unsafe people. I don't think it really matters, but if it's uh, two believers, uh, I think that if you are <clears throat> living together and you're doing it for f- uh, for because it's financially um, beneficial to do that, could I make a suggestion to you? If you really want to solve that problem, it's very easy. All you need is your, yourself and a woman, a pastor and a witness. That's all you need. <laughs> you don't need a fancy wedding. Later on, as you catch yourself... Uh, you can have the fancy wedding if you want it. But right now, the thing is to do the right thing, the biblical thing. So if it's a finances, financial problems solved immediately within the context of marriage. So that is what I would advise you to do. If you're really sincere and you're talking about, you know, we, we, you know we're doing this because we, we can't live apart. Because of, Well, solve the problem. Get married. Get married. You already got children together. I'm assuming that you're still together because you love each other. So why not just get a ring? Rent a ring if you need to buy one. Borrow one. I've done that already, by the way. I've uh, when I was in Saint Vincent, I have given my my wife had given her dress to somebody in the community to get to get married. Uh, I have bought a ring already for a couple to get married, but of course they had to repay me because it's, it's a debt. In uh, that, so I'm sure that if you were sincerely wanting to get married. Uh, and you couldn't, and you really, really want to get your life straightened out as a person, go to your pastor if you're going to a church and tell him. I would be surprised if a church would not buy a ring for you mm. on the condition that you pay back incrementally. Or whatever. They might eventually tell you, look, take the gift. But any church that really has a heart for, for, for people that really live their lives correct would help you in that position. All you need is that lady, yourself, a pastor, a ring, a witness, problem solved simpler answer than I was expecting. <laughs> a lot of people make things so, so... You know, the other thing, I might say this, I always tell people when they want to get married, listen, you've got one or two choices. You can have a big splash and spend all this money and spend the first two years of your life trying to pay back. And one thing you must not have when you go into marriage, your first two years is debt. Yeah. Or you can have a simple wedding, take the money you've got. Later on, when you make it, you really want to have a, have a big splash. But you don't have a pappy show because the people you're trying to impress to be living they're not impressed whatsoever. What they want to see is your marriage work. You have a good family and a God family. That's what should matter to people, not this big splash that people always want to have. Thank you to the individual who sent in that question via text message. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 832. 
and we are discussing codependency. Your questions do not have to relate to codependency, but we will continue discussing this practical topic until your questions come in. Pastor, before we get back to codependency, in relation to the question that came in, we know that in society there are so many cases nowadays of a man and women living together uh, and they're not married. Do you think there's any hope of changing society back to making marriage uh, more common and lasting? Well, I think the only way to help begin to bring about a change it first has to start with the church I'm serious about that we can't be moralizing and the situation in the church is almost as bad as in the world 50% 50% something has to give if the church wants to have a moral authority and really call people back to a life of, of, of living for God they have to start practicing it themselves but I do feel that um a society can change, but it's not going to change without conversion. In other words, you change individuals before you change societies, individuals that make a change in society. And I think the church has to focus on evangelizing, getting people converted, and in the process also begin to uh, help people rebuild the home, etc. I think it's becoming important, uh, Nathan, eventually, that we have to start having classes for uh, married couples who are you know who are going to have a child uh, get somebody experienced women who have kids this is a this is a, 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 a responsibility and a task that I think the elderly women in the church are very very deficient in we've got in our own church we have what four or five small kids these are uh, uh, people who are young married couples they need the counsel and the wisdom of these elderly women who have been through uh, dealing with children and maturing children and training children and so on and so forth. So I think it's a big task, but I think the church has to start with the church. And when the church begins to put it back together uh, and start reaching out, I think that the society can change. But again, the government has to work along with the church in this whole matter. I have said before uh, on this program, if I was the prime minister of any country, I didn't care which one it was, nobody could be married or would not be granted a license until they've been through premarital counseling. We make people go to a course in learning to drive because they can't drive on the road. What decision is more important than a home and the marriage? So why can't we insist? You want to get married? You can get married, but you have to do premarital counseling. A lot of people go into marriage, uh, Nathan, and they don't have a clue what they get into. <laughs> I, I wish I could share things uh, with people on the radio. When I tell these th- things, I, it's incredible how dumb people are when they go into marriage. They have no expectation. They don't know what to expect. They don't do it with in-laws. They don't do it with finances. They don't even do it with sex. All mm-hmm. the sex they've talked about is under the streetlights, and most of it is false. It's bogus, bogus talk. That's how I learned my thing when I was coming up. Then after I got married, I realized these guys were jokers, right? Complete jokers. But those are things that need to be dealt with. Uh, and, and a lot of problems in marriage uh, stem from the fact that there was no preparation. Now, in my day, there was no really need for premarital counseling because I was married for life. <laughs> I never thought about divorcing anybody. 
we're living with a different generation and life has become far more complex than it used to be. Women are independent. They don't need men any longer. They are working, sometimes working for more money than the man. You don't put it with that rot, rot anymore. It was a time when she would put it with it, but no longer. I don't need him, right? Uh, that's the mindset you've got. So you're going to have to try to change the whole matrix of how people are thinking. So I think the government's going to have to work with the, with the church in that regard. There's a guy here that came here, I think his name was Magalong. I think that the Prime Minister um, had uh, pretty much uh, given him the okay to come up with um, certain ways of helping the family. I think the COVID is what really messed this whole thing up. I hope that uh, it still comes through because he has a wonderful program. And I think that if it was to be implemented and the government were to work, uh, with the program, I think it can bring about some significant change. You know, we're going to have to get incremental change. You're not going to have everything overnight, but change has to start somewhere. And I think once it begins that way, I think it has a trickle effect. When you were referencing the fact that women working out of the home and even maybe making more money than their husband, uh, is that not the basis for a a uh, codependent relationship in the fact that you could <laughs> say you're you're uh, trying to hold your wife down by not wanting her to go make more money than you. Well, I don't think. Look, I, I I'm of the opinion that the first few years of a child's life before they start the school, I think the the wife should make the sacrifice of really spending time with that child in those formative years. I think the financial sacrifice is worth the long term result. But I feel that once a child starts to go to school. I really think that the parent is now relieved and I don't have a problem with working in that respect. The other thing, Nathan, I think a lot of work can be done from the home if you want extra money. You know, there's so many computer places you can do so many different things together. I get them sent to me so regularly that you're tempted sometimes to be very honest with you, but I'm not going to go that direction. So I do feel that, um, um, you know, that you can still be in the home and still be helping with finance, etc. Uh, I do feel, too, that the living expense today is a lot different than it was. Uh, my mom never worked. My dad was here, and my, we had seven children. That couldn't happen today, to be very honest with you. The cost of living, rent alone in Antigua would kill you, right? When I was in St. Lucia, I was renting a house as a pastor. It was a four-bedroom house with all kinds of fruit trees, wall building, upstairs and downstairs. I was paying $350 easy. <laughs> That's not like a joke here. But here, it's, rent is very expensive. It's true that Antiguans have paid more salary than the islands. But when you take rent into consideration, the gains are almost lost immediately once you have to rent, right? So I know that uh, you need many cases, both husband and wife working. If you're going to meet the needs of the home, you're going to send the children to school. If you think of sending them to college, you've got to do savings, etc., etc. Even if you want life insurance for yourself and want to leave some of your kids. So it's a very tough financial strain. So I do understand the need for both parties to work. But I do feel that the sacrifice should be made initially. And I do feel that some people do not have to work outside the home. I think there are many, many things that can be done in that regard. A WhatsApp message that has come in from a listener. I say, Pastor, I want your knowledge. You are so knowledgeable of the Bible. I am struggling with giving my tithes. I keep making promises to God and not fulfilling my promises. Question, does God punish Christians when they make a promise and not fulfill it? Because 
I am always financially strained. Well, I will tell you, I was about to tell you that he'd get it back somehow. Uh, if you make a vow before, you know, the book of Proverbs said it's better not to vow than to vow. Because once you make a vow before God, God expects you to keep it. And he will take it from you, believe it or not. The same money that you promised to the Lord that you don't give to him, I'm going to suggest to you, if you were to take a diary and write down, you'll find that when that, sometimes the car breaks down. Sometimes you have an expensive medical bill. So he gets it back somehow. So I would suggest to you that if you make a vow to him, if, if you don't want to make the vow, don't make the vow. But once you make a vow to him, try to fulfill the vow to him. But he will get it back somehow. Uh, uh, as long as you're a believer and you vowed before him, um, he will get it back somehow. So I would suggest to you that you either make the promise. If you can't make the promise, uh, that's up to you. But once you make the promise, you need to keep your commitment to the Lord. Thank you for the listener who sent in that very honest uh heartfelt question, and we trust that the answer from a biblical perspective will be helpful. Pastor, what are some common features of a codependent relationship? Well, I want to suggest to you that um, if you look at a um, relational profile of two people who are codependent, there are several things that you can we can talk about. Um, uh, certain characteristics that identify whether it's a codependent relationship or not. Let me just share some things with you. Uh, both of the people have a loss of a personal identity. They're not sure of themselves. That's why they have to depend on a person. A person who are, is independent is a person who knows identity, knows who he is, knows his limitations, knows his gifts, knows his talents, etc., etc. People who are dependent normally have not come to the point where they, they, they really understand who they are and, and really appreciate the gifts. Uh, secondly, both have difficulty establishing a healthy, intimate relationship. So you find that both of them can't seem to keep a relationship going together uh, separately. So they always have to come back to each other. Uh, thirdly, they both struggle with their self-worth. It's a, a problem of, 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 of valuing themselves and seeing themselves as made in the image of God and having value because uh, they're specially created. Uh, they're designers, uh, persons, as it were. Uh, both always violate their conscience. They know what they're the relationship is not functioning well. They know they should not be doing certain things, but they always go against the conscience and they always have this guilt trip. Uh, both are controlling and manipulative. Uh, the alcoholic, if he's a thing, or the person, he controls by his moods, uh, etc. The other one, the other uh, controls by spending and meeting his needs and taking him this place and taking him the other places. Uh, both have difficulty setting boundaries. And neither partner seem to be able to say, okay, uh, this is not going the way we want to. Let me set some boundaries here. As from next time we meet, these are the boundaries. They just can't seem to do it. Both fear abandonment. Uh, that's the problem. They, they, they seem to need each other because if they separate, uh, they're not going to find a partner. They're not going to find somebody who, who wants them. So they always have this dread of, of abandonment. Both experience uh, extremes of ups and downs. It within the relationship and, and that's why they keep coming back to it they have bad times they have good times and uh, you would think that when they're going through this last bad time that would be it and then suddenly something happens they have a good time it keeps going up like a seesaw but it remains pegged in the center 
Um, both usually have another addiction besides the relationship. They're weak in another area. There's something they're struggling with that they can't seem to overcome, and that seems to carry over in the relationship. Both feel trapped in a relationship, want to get out, but make one step forward and one step backward. In other words, they seem trapped, and they've come to the point where they're willing to accept as, as though they're, they're trapped. Now, here are some other symptoms of a codependent relationship. Uh, your life revolves around that person, that other person's life. You like you have no life for your or yourself. You're, you're so wrapped up in that person that you know you can't seem to live without that person. No matter how you try to please the other person that you're into, you never seem to be good enough for that person. And you would think that you know that, and you would leave it, but you can't seem to. You can't seem to believe that that is actually true. The person might even said things to you that you know, wait a minute, I can't believe this. I did my best. I thought this was the greatest thing I ever did. But and you know what? You would think a sensible, reasonable, rational person would say, that's it. But with a codependent relationship, um, even though you know you can never be good enough, you still stay in it because you feel trapped and you don't want to be abandoned in this whole matter. You also are what you might call a people pleaser. And that's one of the clear signs that you are a, a codependent personality. You want to please people. You want to have applause and you want accolades. And, you, you know, you try to hide your emotions uh, to avoid upsetting the other person. So here you've got all this emotional thing within you. You've got it all bottled up. You wish you could say things, but you can't say. And the reason why you're doing it is because you don't want to upset the other person. Uh, you feel trapped in your relationship, uh, and you feel guilty, but again, you feel scared uh, to leave. Uh, your mood is dictated by the moods and the behavior of the other person. You're like you, you know, you you need them. You're like you're you're like their drug. You're like you're you're, you're, you're they're the, they're your cocaine, as it were. They give you the high, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so your whole moods are dependent and fluctuate on this on on the person, and you feel unappreciated and you feel deprecated and disrespected, you feel that way, but still, you remain within the relationship. And that leads you to the other thing that you constantly go through. You feel anxious, and you feel often depressed. So, those are some of the um, symptoms uh, when you work within a, a codependent relationship. Are there certain relationships that are commonly codependent? Generally speaking, you'll find the situation with an alcoholic within the home. That is clearly a, a codependent relationship. Uh, everybody in the home seems to adjust to the alcoholic. Um, uh, he makes everybody's life miserable. But it's as though that, um, I mean, if it's a father, for example, he's destroying the home, but it doesn't seem as though anybody's willing to do anything to take any steps to really deal with the problem. Sometimes it's out of a faint sense of respect. Sometimes he may be the bread earner in the home. Uh, sometimes he might either be violent and require that the police be brought in to deal with the matter. Uh, but it continues and continues until somebody gets hurt eventually or the whole family disintegrates. The thing could have been salvaged if help was sought for the person. The other thing I, I mentioned at the beginning, uh, Nathan, that sometimes um, within that relationship, because the uh, alcoholic or the drug addict um, 
um, is so much dependent on the other person. It means now that if it's a male, he has lost his leadership role, and that is taken over by the female. Sometimes that role uh, is assumed so well that now she has the family under control. She even have him under control, basically. That sometimes is a very strange thing, but she would prefer that than for him to get sober or get off the drug because once that happens, what happens now? She loses control. So those are some very, very common. The drug addict situation, the alcoholic situation, and romantic situation where abuse is going on again and doesn't that have to have the physical abuse verbal abuse is going on emotional abuse is going on and everybody knows it and the person will tell her friends or he would tell her whatever it is and everybody will say but don't you think it's a wise thing to leave this thing but they can't seem to leave and eventually you know I leave it and guess what two weeks four weeks down the line back together <laughs> it is very 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 frustrating but those are three very very common examples the the alcoholic the drug addict situation and the uh, abusive relationship that's going on between two people so a couple of years ago we talked about pornography as an addiction and how it can be as strong of an addiction as uh, strong drugs is there such a thing as a codependent relationship that involves pornography that you're aware of have you run across I that? I haven't kind run of across it, but I can see the relationship. Um, that be, for example, when a person is watching pornography, I can guarantee you that if he's married, his sex life is going down the drain. Mm. Because what happened, he vicariously enjoys pornography as opposed to his own wife. Mm. Uh, I've dealt with situations like that, to be very honest with you. And sometimes the wife is so attractive, I can't understand what in the world this man must be crazy. Mm. <laughs> but the fact is, these things are so real, uh, Nathan, and the things that they see in pornography, sometimes a decent woman would not entertain that. So they find more excitement and get more scintillating stuff by pornography, and that diminishes her, his desire for his wife. Remember that the, I shouldn't say this on the radio, maybe, the, the largest sex org organ, uh, sex organ is the brain, the mind, right? Pornography captures the mind. And once it captures the mind, it diminishes uh, your desire for your wife. And very often, by the way, the person that they're watching on pornography, the wife can't compare in terms of body shape, that kind of stuff, right? And uh, it's visual for men. And uh, definitely that can... Now, even though he knows he's destroying his marriage, by the way, and sometimes when his wife finally finds out eventually, the worst thing a wife could ever find out that he's watching pornography, to be very honest with you, it, it, it makes her feel cheap. Uh, it makes her feel less than she is as a person. Uh, her dignity is diminished. Her sex appeal is diminished. Um, her trust in him breaks down. But still, he knows that one day it's going to come out. But again, it's like he can't live without it, right? It's affecting his marriage. She's wondering why he's, you know, it was two times a week. Now it's once a, two months, three months, four months. And she knows something is going on there. And uh, so I think there can be a, a codependent relationship between uh, pornography and an individual. And I think that happens a lot, Nathan. And I really think that, you know, I mentioned some time ago when I've, the doctor, Dr. Ramsey, who is my doctor, and I had a conversation with him some time ago. Uh, and he was saying to me at, at one time that uh, the, the impotence among young men was shocking. 
right? Impotent. I'm talking about young people who should be vibrant. And part of that is linked to the fact that pornography has drained them, to be very honest with you. Drained them completely where they can't, they're not attracted anymore. But it's like, it's like you eating two pounds of sugar to the point where you can have a whole hill of sugar. <laughs> you don't enjoy it anymore. I think that's what happened with porn. It really, really destroys your, your, your sex drive for your partner. And it's one of the most evils uh, that should be stopped. Um, the cable stations here, uh, you don't have to. You don't have to do a, a, a porn cable. But I'll tell you what they'll do with you. If you watch TV and you go past twelve o'clock, they'll always do that. You have to be very, 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 very careful. That's why when people tell me they've got cable, and I and I, I remember when I was dealing with a, ch a child, uh, she was sleeping in school all the time. I tried to feel, ask me to speak to you know what's going on. I discovered that her mom be watching television. Mom will fall asleep, and the child will be watching TV one, two o'clock in the morning. When I heard that, I didn't have to know exactly what would be happening at that point in time. So you got to be very, very. But it is these people want to get you addicted early, and that's where the, the cell phone uh, is very, very dangerous to these kids. These kids don't go after these things, Nathan. They just send it to them, and then when they see it, they're captured by it, and then. Imagine what it is to have a 12-year-old, 13-year-old captured with this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Think about that. If big men can't handle it, how in the world are these little kids going to handle it? See? So these TV cable people are going to be held responsible before God. They're going to be judged so severely uh, that they always coming. in. There is coming. The evil that they are willfully doing in perpetrating this thing on the young lives in Antigua all over the world. And is this something that we're only going to find out in the secular world, or is it involved in the church also? Oh, no, I think there's a—I uh, don't have the, the stats with me here, but um, I forgot they did some some surveys about pastors. And I don't want to exaggerate, but it was quite high, it's like 40%, uh, who said that they engage in pornography once, uh, you know, uh, regularly, basically. Mm -hmm. It was shocking. Um I've known of a pastor who lost his job that way, uh, where he sent his uh, computer to be fixed. And to his dismay, the guy, you know, you can get, I, yeah. I don't know how to do this stuff, but when I realized the man had been watching pornogra uh, pornography and had websites, and when it was known, made known to the church, mm. he was dismissed, rightfully dismissed, to be honest with you. Be sure your sin will find you out. Your sin will find you out at some point in time. But it's a problem for... Christians as well as unbelievers, m mainly because, Nathan, it is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. And it can be done so secretly. You could be in your car. You could be in your bedroom. You could be on the beach. You could be, you could be walking down the street. It's available on your cell phone. It's available on your computer. So it, it is tempting, very, very, very tempting. In relation to the codependency relationship, you mentioned that the parent-child relationship as a potential codependent relationship, what's the difference between bonding with a child and being an enabler or enmeshment? Well, bonding is something that is healthy. And uh, when we talk about bonding, we're talking about um, two parent, a parent and a child getting together um, uh, the parents see themselves as, as God's instrument to meet the basic physical, emotional, and spiritual needs of the child. And so there is a, a bonding that results in, in nurturing uh, that child. So what happens is that the child uh, is emotionally attached 
to the parent and the child feels fulfilled and made whole because of this relationship uh, with the with the parent. So the child, the, the parent is actually feeding the emotion of the child and, and making the child feel good about themselves. When it comes to this other matter of uh, enmeshment, it's reversed. It occurs when a parent needs excessive connection with the child in order to get their own emotional needs met. So they become enmeshed with the child. So nurturing doesn't flow naturally from the mother to the child. It is now where it's actually flowing from the child to the mother. So and she, this really happens. Yeah, this happens. This happens. Um, that's why it's a, you know you've got to be careful how friendly you become with your child. Uh, you'll be surprised, uh, Nathan, to know that there are still some big children that sleep with their mom. You'll be shocked with that, right? <laughs> you're you're yeah. kidding, right? No, I'm not kidding. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding whatsoever. But the, what happens, it leaves the child emotionally drained and empty, not filled now. Right. It's like, let me use an illustration. The mother now uh, shares everything with the child about her own relationship, the problems she's having with her boyfriend. So the child is now playing the role of more as a mother. Those are not things you share with a child and stuff like that. But then again, you see why the child will be drained because if she's having problems with a boyfriend, she's sharing all of these emotions with a child, it's her mom. Yeah. Obviously, she's going to feel that somebody's hurting her mom or doing something. So that's what we're now. It's, it's, it's no longer now a healthy bonding. They become so enmeshed. Uh, and so the child is almost like a mature adult virtually listening to the mother's problems and whether approving or disapproving, almost counseling, as it were, in that, that matter. So it does happen. I'm learning all kinds of things. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess as a counselor, yeah, as a yeah, pastor, you you come across a lot of things that yeah, you would yeah. like to think don't exist. Yeah, you know, you know, we just had our young youth pastor just um, doing his counseling as well, and he's had, you know, he's been working up at the hospital. And uh, he is, his eyes have been open like never before. He's like been sheltered all of his life. And, uh, you know, he, when he really realized what, what really happens in life and what's going on behind the scenes, I think he was just overwhelmed that these things could be happening. But that's the real world. The real world is a, a nasty world where people are using people and, and everybody is basically selfish. Everybody wants their needs met and it doesn't matter who they use to get that needs met. And in a lot of cases, Nathan, it's the older person using the younger person in a relationship and taking advantage of the younger, normally because they have some kind of resources that the younger person needs. What is the most important decision or question that a person can answer in their lifetime? Well, the most important question certainly is, am I born again? Do I know God? Am I saved? Am I a believer? Uh, I don't think there's any other question more important than that. Remember that life is a preamble. It's preparing us to meet God. And this is the time we prepare to meet Him because we would hate to stand before Him and we're just strangers. We need to know Christ. We need to trust the Lord. Does my church membership in the last 20 seconds, does my church membership affect my standing before God as far as whether I'm saved or not? Absolutely not. You become a church member because you're saved and you want to be part of the body of Christ where you can use your gifts and your talents and you can be edified and you can be an assistance and also help evangelize. Thank you for listening to this episode of That's Truth. Be sure you tune in next week as we continue to discuss codependent relationships. Thank you for joining us for today's program. 
We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.